Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. We're going to read this short four verses that speak to the reformation of the mind. We've already looked at what is true biblical reformation in general, and then we looked at not using the means of grace carelessly. Now we're going to look at the reformation of our minds, Colossians 3, verses 1 to 4. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. May God bless the reading of his word. The text is set in actually a very particular place in the book of Colossians, in this letter to the church at Colossae, which was an extension the church at Jerusalem. Here the Apostle Paul is placing his authority over that church and sending them instructions by the power of the Holy Spirit in this letter. And the setting of these verses, the context, is immediately after chapter 2, in which he has described, especially in verses 16 and 17, all of the vain philosophies. It seems that the, the Christians at Colossae were shackled by philosophies of the world or trite ideas, Jewish ceremonies, things pointing them to shadows. In those verses, in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, he talks about food and drink, certain ceremonial laws surrounding that, new moons, festivals, the shadows of things to come novel philosophical views and religious heritage seem to be a stumbling block for many particularly for the Jewish Christians and towards the end of that chapter he says in following all of these various things it is really will worship it is really self-imposed religion over what God has done in Jesus Christ and so then, as a result of explaining these things that they seem to be shackled with, he then says, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above in those first four verses. Let's look at these verses broken down in that midst, in that context. He begins by saying in this command, if then you were raised with Christ. If this is the case, then something else should be the case. He doesn't say since, but he says if. It's the if question. The context excludes Paul from simply saying, well, since you're a born-again Christian, this is the way that you should act. Because the context demands he deals with the people who claim to be delivered. This is the professing church. But have yet to completely reform their thinking. Their thinking is not thoroughly reformed as a result of what Christ's work has accomplished. They are still stuck with earthly ceremonies and vain philosophies and have yet to come to realize that they've been utterly delivered from all of the pomp and circumstance through Jesus Christ. They don't have to worry about Jewish philosophy. They don't have to worry about the ceremonial law. They're delivered from all of the types and shadows. Being crucified with Christ warrants them being raised with Christ. Resurrection follows crucifixion. And not only does it stop there, but here in the way that Paul has said or couched his terms in, these, in this first phrase, ascension follows resurrection. If you're raised with Christ, you seek those things which are above. Where is Jesus? He is ascended to the Father. He is ascended to heaven. And so he commands the Christian to seek those things above. Seek those things which are above. 
since Christ is ascended, Paul is following the line of thought from going to the death of Christ, chapter 1, to the resurrection of Christ, chapter 2, to the ascension of Christ, which is our verses here in chapter 3. And the command is an imperative. Seek. Present active. Imperative. You must seek. All of you seek. Because professing Christians look up to heaven mentally to find Christ. The word itself means to seek in order to find, to aim at, to strive after. And it even has some connotations surrounding it as if we are to crave something. It carries about the continual act of seeking in the active sense. Like Psalm 63.1, listen to the tenor of this. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. Now here are the parallels. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you. In a dry and thirsty land when there is no water. It's that thirsting. It's that I must have it lest I die. Hebrews 11.6, upon that same idea, says, But without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who do what? Who diligently seek him. Paul is not saying this is a take-it-or-leave-it situation. You can if you want, but you don't have to. He says, if you were raised with Christ, then you must be a Christian seeker. If you are not raised, then you don't seek. And so he tells us in this imperative to seek the things above. And the next phrase, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now this is the object of the Christian's mind. Paul is a little cryptic here. What is the aim or the goal that he is pointing us to? He says, seek those things which are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Now, where Christ is seated, that's the throne room of heaven. Now, maybe he's talking about setting our minds on the things above, which is the throne room. Or, what else is above in that particular manner? The saints. The saints are also above. Maybe he wants us to think about the saints. The glassy sea is above, right? We're casting down our golden crowns upon the glassy sea, right around the throne of God. The angels are above. All of these different things are above. But he says, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. What he's pointing us to is not just things, but the power of God in Christ. And he uses that particular term, the Christ, on purpose. The title is Messiah, the Anointed One. Sometimes the comma is put between is and the word seated. It might be that way in the Bible that you're reading. But it's not there in the Greek text. There shouldn't be a comma there, which ends up actually making it somewhat confusing. It should simply read where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. See, that's where our mind should be set, where Jesus is. His power. The Christian is not bound to the confines of this world. Mentally, by his mind, his meditation is to be this. It's to set his mind upon the power of God in Christ and the authority in Christ where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now, what Paul is doing in stating that particular phrase is he's echoing Psalm 110. And what he's doing is he is explaining in cryptic terms, in a very concise way, the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption teaches throughout all of the Old Testament and much of the New Testament in its application of what Jesus has accomplished, that the Father and the Son pact together or make an agreement together and the Holy Spirit. The Father sends the Son. The Son is sent and the Holy Spirit ultimately applies that which the Son accomplishes. And here, in Psalm 110, verses 1 through 5, here in Colossians, that Psalm 
is reiterated in this short phrase. Listen to what those verses say. It's a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord. Yahweh says to my Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. So here Paul is taking this particular psalm and he is couching it inside the theological package of the covenant of redemption and saying that the Christian's mind should be set on the work of Christ. Here is Christ seated, the high priest, the intercessing Christ, the anointed one, at the right hand of God, the place of power. Whenever you hear the term, he is his right-hand man in the movies, you always think of the guy who's strong or who has power, can make things happen. Jesus is the one with all power, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. The high priest is where the Christian mind should be set at. So Paul is teaching in the whole book of Colossians that we're to have faith in Christ. Christ the high priest and that Christ the high priest is preeminent above all others and that there is reconciliation in Christ and there is sacrificial service that Christians must give for Christ not being philosophy but Christ is where our mind should be at not legalism but Christ not carnality or worldliness or earthly mindedness but Christ this is where our mind should be set Christ the anointed one who fulfills the Trinitarian pact of faithfulness to the eternal covenant is where our mind should be set for what he's done. The ultimate and all-inclusive place of power is the right hand of God where Christ is. And then Paul says, set your minds on the things above, not on things on the earth. Here we have a, a positive prescription, repeated even with a reversal, a negative prescription against the things on the earth. He says, positively, set your mind on the things above. But then he says, not on the things on the earth. He wants you to be clear, especially from what he's already gone over. All the ceremonies of shadows have been done away with, and our liberty is set in heaven where Christ is seated. It's not on earth. In heaven... Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, High Holy Days, the Sabbaths, festivals, new moons. Paul says all of that's gone. All of that is utterly meaningless. Not temporary fading shadows, but eternal realities fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The ceremonial law is fulfilled in Christ. We don't have to look back to it. We don't look to earthly things. That's why he makes a differentiation between the offerings in the Old Testament and the offering of Christ here. In the Old Testament, we had to do all of these things that were visible signs to us. Visible signs to the Jews to sacrifice. They were object lessons. But here, in conjunction with what Christ has done, our mind should be set upon his benefits. That Jesus has fulfilled the covenant of redemption. He has fulfilled salvation and as a result of fulfilling it there are benefits that he's going to pour out to his elect and so he says there that we must have our minds set nowhere else why for you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God when Christ who is our life shall appear so you will appear in glory with him being dead to the world through Christ's crucifixion, Christians seek life in Christ in heaven, who holds all authority, seated at the right hand of God. We're, we're dead in him. Christians are dead in Christ, and we're hidden with Christ in God. God is faithful to bring to pass the fullness of blessing in Christ to the believer. 
But the believer must seek those things above. He can't be earthbound. He must have his mind upon Christ above. So, in these four verses, if I could summarize it this way, the, these professing Christians were having trouble discerning what was important. Various philosophies and Jewish traditions were crowding into the place where Christ is supposed to have sole authority. If the Christian is truly born again, the Christian mind should be seeking Christ to set his mind on Christ. As a result of dying and being spiritually raised in Christ through his atonement, in his resurrection, victory over death, death which is only temporary, our minds aren't supposed to be set there, the Christian is then to ascend into the heavenlies by way of his mind. Mental thoughts, meditations, high thoughts of God. They should be set at the hand of power, where Christ is seated, the place of power, the right hand of God. Christ's present intercession. It's very interesting that of all of the things that Reformed theology seems to speak about, one of the things that is left off oftentimes is the present intercession of Jesus. This is central, Paul is saying, to the, to the place where the Christian mind is supposed to be. Paul is then expounding the reformation of the mind from that which is bound by carnal duties found in a temporary world, to setting the mind on Christ alone. That's what reforms the mind. And we must set our minds on his present benefits. If we do that, these last couple of verses, verses 3 and 4, our life being hidden and then our hope of glory, that's an eschatological hope. If we have our mind set in the right place, the consolation to it, is that we ultimately have hope in the Lord Jesus and we will be in glory with him in the end. When he returns, so we shall too be glorified and we will reign in glory with him for all eternity. So where are our minds set? What we should pull out of this text, these few verses, one of those things is the seeking and the setting of the Christian mind on Christ is the reformation of the Christian mind. It is what renews our mind. We have to seek and set our minds on Christ. That will reform our thoughts. It will reform our lives. It will reform everything. To reform the mind is to think rightly about its object and aim. It's to have the mind set in the right place and thinking about the right things. Paul is not nonchalant in what he's saying here. He's very specific about what he's saying here and where our mind should be at. The Christian's union with Christ presses him to have constant spiritual communion with Christ. Since Christians are freed from the ceremonial law, they must walk more closely with God in gospel obedience. And as heaven and earth are contrary to one another, both cannot be followed together. An affection of the one will weaken and abate affection to the other. You can't have your mind in both places. In the Old Testament, the elect had to go to a place where sacrifice would take place. They had to go to Jerusalem. They had to go to the temple. They had to do something visibly seen with an animal and a sacrifice. But the Christian, what does the Christian do? The Christian simply has to have right thoughts about God. He simply has to have right thoughts about Christ. If you want to define worship, it is to have high thoughts of God. It's not that if the Christian sets his mind daily on Christ, that they will die with Christ. That's works. That would not be true. Working in that way does not gain dying and raising in Christ. Rather, since Christians have died, and since Christians were raised with Christ, Christians seek they do that as a result. Their minds are constantly seeking and being set on Christ. Now it's interesting that the, 
The words that Paul uses, he doesn't say heart, and he doesn't say affections. He says the mind. The mind is described since active mental reformation can never take place without right thinking. You cannot understand the propositional truths in that Bible that you hold unless you think rightly about it. It's impossible. Yet the scriptures refer to the mind as the navigating principle of the affections. See, the Christian can't have a change of mind or a reformation of the mind if he's not thinking rightly about the things of God. To have a mind set on something will involve the affections and the conscience, the whole being, ultimately. Because the mind is going to navigate that. For example, Jesus says in Matthew 6.21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your whole being will be there. But how do you know what your treasure is? You see, I used the no word. How do you know what your treasure is? The no word, the mind, informs the affections, and the affections, the passions, the whole being, follow the mind. If the affections and passions rule the mind, that's where the Christian gets into trouble. Instead, as Isaiah 26 and verse 3 says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. His mind is stayed on you. And people say you have peace of mind. Why do you have peace of mind? Because you're, you're thinking rightly. If your emotions get the best of you, you become anxious or doubtful. Or you think wrongly when your emotions get the best of you. Think of Peter in Matthew 16, 23. But he turned and said to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Right? This is Jesus talking to Peter. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. It is impossible to worship God rightly. It is impossible to worship the living God without right thinking. Next week, we're going to look at worship. The reformation of worship. But we can't get there unless we're thinking rightly about what God has said and about where our mind should be at. It would be impossible to worship God without that. That's why Peter, in this instance, in wanting Christ to do something other than God had intended, he didn't know the Old Testament scriptures. He just didn't know it. Didn't know it well enough to know that the Christ was to suffer. And so Jesus says, Get thee behind me, Satan. Because you're not thinking rightly. In the very same idea, setting your mind on the things of God. It's the same thing that Paul is saying. Set your mind on the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So the Christian is to practically fulfill Colossians 3, 1-4 by seeking. Seeking is a mode. And for us, it is a command. Seek. The Christian gains an aim about him through his seeking. Because the more he seeks Christ, the more visible his aim becomes. In Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, the closer that Christian and hopeful came to the celestial city, the easier it was to see the bright shining light of its countenance on the hill and subsequently strengthen their endeavor to get there. The closer they got, the more they sought the city, the more their minds were set on the goal. The mind's employment in earnestly seeking after the things above forms that holy aim. It's like the sheep in a rut. When Jesus talks about pulling your sheep out of the ditch, it's not that the sheep suddenly sees this hole and jumps into it. The idea is, is that as the sheep over and over and over and over and over again walk in the same place, they create a rut. And as they continue to do that, it digs holes and they get stuck in that rut. You've heard the expression, I'm stuck in a rut. This is the idea. And so, in this way, like the sheep in the rut, over and over, the more that he walks on the path, the more defined that path is. Ultimately, we don't want to be stuck in the rut, but we want to have a clear and defined path from going over it and over it and over it over again. 
And our mind is then to seek continually the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. That's what we do. Ultimately, that makes that second imperative emphatic. Set your mind on the things above. You're seeking and setting. It's repetition for exclamation. We got a lot of that lately. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, as we saw. Repetition for exclamation. Think rightly. Set your minds there through seeking. Eternal things are more important than temporary things. And the, the idea of setting means to set in concrete. It's as if you're laying a foundation. Seeking gives birth to setting. They are inseparable. It's not that the mind is instantaneously there in heaven as a result of being raised with Christ. It's not that you're instantly sanctified in that manner. There's perseverance. There's active seeking, which leads to further setting. And the only way that that happens, the only way that that happens, is through the pattern of sound words. Holding to sound doctrine. It's not just enough to set the mind on Jesus, but that Christians should guard very closely what Jesus they set their minds to. It's not a fabricated Jesus of their own liking, but one true living God who is seated at the right hand. Just Him. It has to be the Jesus of the Scriptures. This is nothing other than the truth. If the Christian is not thinking rightly, then he's thinking wrongly. He can't set his mind on something that is wrong and have it set on the Christ, the anointed, the one who has fulfilled all things for salvation. That's why Jesus says the truth will set you free. And that word is set at liberty. Our minds are to be set on him. It is only through that liberty of understanding Christ and him alone that the reformation of the mind occurs. It's only occurring that way, by the truth, by a solemn covenanting to uphold the truth, and by a thoroughness of abiding in the truth. That's what true biblical reformation is. It only happens by the truth. Only the truth of God reforms the mind. The mind is to be set in concrete on Christ, seated at the right hand of God, nowhere else. A lot of these television crime shows demonstrate often where they'll find a footprint at the crime scene. They need to take that footprint with them. Well, they're not going to dig up the dirt. It'll mess up the footprint. So what do they do? They take a plaster mixture and they pour it into the footprint and it becomes hard and it gains the impression of the footprint in the plaster and then they can take that back to the lab. The plaster is poured in, it hardens, and it picks up the image of the footprint. Seeking and setting does the same thing with Jesus Christ and us. We are then, as we are poured into him, so to speak, we are set with the truth. And we have to make sure to guard our minds from corrupted doctrine and things taught by demons because false doctrine is everywhere and it's like gangrene. It rots the mind. Error itself is idolatry. One of the Puritans said heresy is leprosy of the head. And that's what it is because it rots our mind and it kills ultimately. The Christian should desire like the plaster mold to conform to the image of Christ or print of Christ. And that happens by knowing Christ, only through the truth. And that's why Paul did not want the Christians at Colossae to be delivered by wrong thinking or some kind of vain religiosity, all that stuff in chapter 2. Instead, he wanted their focus on Christ and the truth that surrounds Christ. What he did in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his present intercession. Now, the Christian seeks and sets his mind on Christ through the means of grace. That is how that seeking and setting happens. Now, I want you to hear this, and I want you to not make any mistakes about it, ever. Christ has given his church two main conduits to reaching heaven with the mind. Only two. 
There are only two ways in which the mind seeks and sets itself on Jesus Christ. It's through the word and the sacraments. That's it. Not through youth groups. Not through men's ministries. Not through women's Bible studies. There are two main conduits that send our minds to heaven that Christ has given his church. And we're going to talk about those in more depth next week. But think about what Jesus said to the officers in his church, the apostles, before he ascended. The great commission to them was twofold. What was the commission? They preach, teach, making disciples by teaching the word and by baptizing the sacraments. The word and sacraments are the two things that Christ has given his church that we might set our minds on him and his power. Now those can take the forms of prayer and Bible reading and study and church services, but that's what God has given us, and it's enough. But we have to ask, what if we carelessly use those means of grace what if Christians don't set their minds on Christ well then they're set on the sundry things of the world they're set on something they're always set on something the apostle assumes either on Christ above or the earth below only two places only two realms either the Christian is consumed with things temporary or he's consumed with things eternal Earthly minded things are of no value. Why would the Christian waste their mind on earthly minded things, on things on the earth? The heathen are earthly minded. That's why they try to fill up their lives with cars and houses and parties and things of that nature. It can't be for the Christian that their lives are, are compartmentalized, that they're sectioned out. Like Jesus is just for Sunday. His whole life is to be conditioned by the mind being set upon Christ. And every part of the pie, the whole pie is Jesus. The whole pie is the Christian in Jesus. But each section of the pie is something that God has given the Christian to do. But in all of those things, our minds are to be set. If we're working, our minds are set on Christ as working before the Lord. If we're mothering our children, our minds are still set as what God has commanded mothers to do for their children. If it is that we are ministering to somebody else, the same is likened unto it. Our minds are set on Christ no matter what aspect of our life we're dealing with. And if the mind is the navigating principle of our affections, then the Christ is the navigating principle of the mind. If it's not set there, then it's set on things. Without a mind set on Christ, Christians give temptations a great foothold. Their mind isn't set in a place where their mind is guarded, and it's given up to sin. You know, sin crouches at the door. Sin just waits for us. Just wants to jump on our back. If a Christian doesn't set their mind on Christ, sin walks with them. They walk with sin. And for those whose mind is not set on Christ, sin becomes like a bear trap. Just walking through the woods and suddenly they step on the trap and it grabs their foot and chains them to the ground. And and it's it's clawed and it has teeth on it it and it rips. And animals actually will gnaw their leg off to escape. It's terrible. But Christians have to have the knowledge to avoid the trap or to pull the pin and make the trap of no effect at all. They can't let temptations have a foothold. They can't let their minds be set on earthly things because they have the world, the flesh, and the devil to contend to. Even the devil will try to control the Christian's mind. The devil makes the most of every opportunity to ravage and destroy all those who have their minds set on Christ because he wants to pull the Christian mind away from Christ just as he did with Peter. That's why Jesus says, Get you behind me, Satan. It's not that the devil wanted Peter to think about the devil. It's not what Jesus said. He wasn't thinking about the devil. Rather, he wanted Peter to think about earthly things. Things that are not God-centers. 
And that was Jesus' rebuke to Peter. And when he sifts the Christian like Peter, the Christian's mind will be set on earthly things. And Satan has done his job when he has pulled the Christian mind away from Christ just for a minute. Just for a minute. If your mind is set on the world, it's the world's. If it's set on the flesh, it's the flesh's. If it's set on the devil and sin, then they're going to own you. Let it never be that the Christian is owned of anything other than Christ seated at the right hand of God. The focus is lost when the Christian shifts their mental eyes to temporary things. If we seek and set our minds on Christ, our minds will experience Reformation. Reformation of our thoughts, which will translate down into reformation of our actions. I think, personally, this text is rather simple to apply to us in our everyday life. The reformation of the mind. This is what the whole Christian life is about. This is why we do what we do in coming to church and reading our Bibles and studying. We want our minds reformed. We want our minds set to biblical truth. Christ came to fulfill His work before the Father so that the entirety of our redeemed humanity would spiritually perceive the glory of the Father in truth. It's in truth. Your word is truth. Remember Jesus as the high priest. Remember, these verses are set as Jesus as the high priest in heaven. This is where our minds are supposed to be set at. John 17. That they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may also be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. Ultimately, this is the priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus, the high priest. This is what he wants to see happen. The beholding of the glory of the Father and of Christ by the Spirit, it's accomplished only in one way, through seeking and setting, and only by the conduits of the Word and sacraments. Seeking things above is not a physical act. There's no mystical special staircase in the closet door that we're going to walk up and suddenly go up to heaven when we need to meet Christ. It's a mental act. That mental act sends us to heaven to partake of spiritual blessings that are ultimately communicated to us through the Spirit of God. That's how we get them. Christ physically abides in heaven. And here we walk throughout the Christian walk. But we have to walk in the Spirit. Because the Spirit is the one who helps us partake of all the benefits of Christ. And if we're not seeking and setting our minds on Christ and the things of God, the Spirit has nothing to communicate to us. Communion, love, comfort, consolation, grace, all of those things. If the mind is not set upon Christ, where all spiritual benefits reside, then our minds are set on earthly things. And we can't have our minds set on two objects at once. Can't be done. If you think you have your mind set on Christ and the things of the world at the same time, really you enjoy neither of them. And the vain heart of man, by overdoing those things, undoes itself. And reaching at two objects spoils both of them. That's why serving two masters is impossible. That's why James 1.8 says he is a double-minded man and stable in all his ways. You can't be double-minded. Double-mindedness will never comfort you. It will always cause doubt, negativity, anxiety, worry. Whenever you fall into any of those things, be reminded you're not thinking rightly. The reformed mind is a mind continually seeking and setting its affections on Jesus Christ. He is your God. He is your Messiah. He is seated with all power and all the benefits that He has accomplished for you. Christ is ready to pour out His benefits to you. He's ready. He stands ready to do that. And He just asks that we would seek Him. That we would seek Him and set our mind and keep our focus on Him and not the, thing, the things of the world. Because the world crowds Christ out. The world crucifies Christ. We should be able to say with the Shulamite in Song of Solomon 5.16, as she said of her beloved, His mouth is most sweet. Yes, 
he's altogether lovely. Why does she say his mouth is most sweet? It's where Christ kisses us. It's where Christ instructs us. It's where his breath is, his spirit, his mouth is most sweet. Yes, he is altogether lovely. Because it's, it's very easy for Christians, it's very easy for us as Christians to be earthly minded by the things of the world. Distractions are easy. The mind will always easily remember stupid things. Always. Simple to remember dumb things. But when's the last time you memorized a chapter of the Bible that's hard? Diversions cause our minds to wander. It's wandering. It's, it's something that happens deep in our hearts that causes us to be hypocritical. And we don't set our minds on Christ. And it starts to set, be set on the world. That's why Jesus says, In vain do they worship me, honoring me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. One looks as though they're engaged in the task, but their heart's really not in the task. They're earthly-minded, earthbound in some way. And so a condition or state of mind in which the attention is diverted from an original focus or interest is what we call being distracted or actually really being the hypocrite. The mind is always distracted by physical things, things we see. Those things are filed away and they're recalled at inopportune times and... The Bible calls these idle thoughts. Our minds are not to be set around idle thoughts because idle thoughts set us over and give us over to idolatry. Listen to what God says in Hosea 4.17. This is a, a scary verse. Ephraim is joined to idols. They're thinking wrongly. They're not thinking about God the way that they're supposed to. And they're joined to idols. And so what does God say? Let me go rescue them. Let me go save them from their idolatry. Let me set their minds in the right spot. He doesn't say that. He says this. Listen to this. Let him alone. Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Let him have his idols. Let him be dry. Let him be lifeless. Let him be spiritually bankrupt for a time. Seeking and setting our minds on physical things is easier to focus on because mental seeing or understanding takes work. That's why, frankly, the church today, around the planet, around this globe, 21st century Christendom, is relatively stupid. Mental seeing or understanding takes work. The setting of the mind, the reformation of the mind, its continued sanctification is ultimately accomplished by understanding the truth. Not simply seeing a physical object or having an emotional experience. That's why much of Christendom is ignorant of basic Christian doctrine. The basics. Because study and understanding is hard. It's not easy. No one said it was easy. God didn't say it was easy. But the Jewish Christians, see, they were distracted in policy by philosophies that were more easily manageable than having to study the Old Testament scriptures or some of these new letters that were coming out that were also inspired scriptures. Instead, if I could liken it to this, they were much more satisfied with the 40 days of purpose so that they could have a purpose-driven life. Or they were also distracted with ceremonies that they could see and experience and made them feel good. And that's the catch-all phrase of praise and worship today. That's where that goes. It's much easier to focus on that which is religious and simple. But when we don't seek and set, we become discontent when we focus on circumstances, not Christ. We become unfulfilled. We become burned out when we focus on our job or on our children or trying to fill up our day with nothing instead of Christ. We become disattached to Christ when we allow our energy to funnel into things that are temporal instead of Christ who is seated at the right hand of God. The eternal things. You know, it took me a long time to really grasp that bodily exercise Profits little. Profits, but it really profits little in comparison to 
the eternal things I should be setting on my, my mind on. Imagine instead of working out four hours a day through college, that I set my mind on the things above four hours a day. That's why some of the great biblical maxim instructs us to disengage our focus on things that distract us and instead seek first the kingdom, grow in grace, come boldly before the throne, seek those things above. That's why it's all pointing us towards heaven. Christ's work cannot simply be a compartment in our life. He has to be our everything. He has to be where our minds are set. Because the Christian mind is a terrible thing to waste. And that mind is either a slave to Christ, seeking and setting our affections on Him, or it's a slave to the world. If you're raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. For Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. That is the only way our minds will be reformed. It's through the truth. It's through setting our minds on what is right. Right thinking. That is where the reformation of the mind will take place. We have to cast off all of that which is temporary. All of that which doesn't benefit us. And anything that we do in this life, while we're here, should still be couched in having our minds set on Christ. That is the navigating principles of our, of our affections. And that is why our affections should always be guided by our mind and our right thinking. Why? Because we're, we're dead. Our lives are hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ returns, we will appear with Him in glory. We will be also revealed gloriously with Him. It's our eschatological hope. It's our hope, our ultimate hope, that we would receive all of the benefits of the resurrection power that Paul is telling us we should be setting our minds on here. Here Christ, the resurrected, anointed Messiah, have our minds set there, and when Christ returns, we'll also appear with Him in the same manner, and we'll be renewed forever, never to fall again. That's where our minds are supposed to be. That's why we are to be eschatological masters of the world. Because our hope, our hope set on Christ should guide everything. And our hope, if it's set rightly, we should be seeking and setting our minds where Christ is right now, which is in heaven, because of his benefits. One day we will be there. That's why Paul will say later, your conversation should be in heaven. The way that you walk, the way that you talk, the way that you carry yourself should be set as if you're already living in heaven. That's why Paul says that we are setting our minds on the things above. Our minds go there. They're sent there. They're quickly sent up to heaven that we might meditate on the things of God and the things of Christ. And that's also why meditation in and of itself is so neglected in the Christian's walk. Because it's hard to sit and think and study and have our minds set upon those things. But Christ says, if we do that, Christ says, through the Apostle Paul, set your mind on me. Set your mind on me, and I'll give you all of my benefits. And I'll communicate them through the power of the Spirit. Remember where I am. Remember what I've done. I've completed everything. I have fulfilled the covenant. And I'm here, sitting at the right hand of God of all power look to me and set your mind on the things above let's pray together mighty God and everlasting Father we are thankful for you we thank you Heavenly Father full of goodness and grace as you are pleased to declare your holy will to your poor servants here through these words and to instruct us in the righteousness of your law grant that it may be inscribed and impressed upon our heart and mind in such a way that in all of our life we might endeavor to serve and obey none besides you that our minds might be seeking and setting on Jesus Christ and him alone our high priest we ask that you would not impute to us at all the transgressions which we have committed against your law 
pouring your abounding grace upon us in such an abundance that we might have cause to praise and glorify you through Jesus Christ, your Son. He is our Lord. He is in heaven. He is all-powerful. Let us, O God, set our minds upon Him. Help us by Your Spirit to do that. And we would so ask it. In Jesus' name, Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.